Our reading for our Advent series today comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staffer's shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no ends. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, well, let me join Evan and Nicola just in welcoming you to our um, Advent series this year. Uh, my name is Nate. Um, it's just a joy to be with you, whether you're with us here in person or online. Uh, it's really good uh, to be here in this season. So about a week ago, on a little over a week ago, on Thanksgiving evening, our family sat down for kind of a little bit of a tradition, which is to watch some Christmas movie on, Christ- on, on Thanksgiving night. And this year, it was Elf. You guys all seen that, right? Well, there's one scene in Elf where Michael, the kind of like younger stepbrother of Will Ferrell's character Elf, you know, grabs Santa's book, right, with a list and everything in it, and runs and gets himself on camera. And he begins to read off names and what they want, right? What all these kids are waiting for. And the news reporter is, of course, skeptical, right? And, um, and finally, Michael says, well, hey, what's your name? And she says, Charlotte Denon, Channel One. And so Michael turns the page, finds the name, and then on the air says these words, Charlotte Denon wants a Tiffany engagement ring and for her boyfriend to stop dragging his feet and commit already. Right, there's, a, there's that moment in that movie where all of a sudden what she's waiting for has been broadcast across the airwaves, right? Well, what are you waiting for? You know, the reality is all of us in the season are waiting. Some of you kids, you're counting down the days. By the way, there's 20 until Christmas. And you're wondering, because what's in that box, right? What's, in, what's underneath the wrapping? I can't wait until that comes. And I just said 20, and that's, not, that's like too long, and all the parents are like, that's way too short, right? Some of you... You are waiting for a new job. It's been a really hard season at your employment. And you are waiting for a job with the right fit. Others of you, if you're honest, you're, you're waiting for just new hires at your job, right? In the midst of the great resignation, you are overloaded with more responsibilities than you've had before because there's not enough around you. And you are waiting for, to get some help. 
Others of you, you are waiting for a spouse. You're dwelling in singleness. Others of you, you are waiting and longing to have children. Others of you are waiting and longing for the children you have to grow up, right? Some of you are just hoping and waiting and longing that your child will just sleep through the night. You are waiting. All of us are waiting. In fact, right now, right, all of us are waiting for the pandemic to be somehow over, to somehow be not the thing that is right in front of us day after day. And that's why the season of Advent is really helpful. And that's why the book of Isaiah is really helpful, because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is actually known as the waiting prophet. And one of the unique things about this book is that whether you're young or old, religious or non-religious, Isaiah offers a vision of the world that I would say we are all waiting for. In the weeks to come, we'll see Isaiah paint a picture of a world of compassion. We'll see Isaiah paint a picture in the world in a couple weeks of justice. On Christmas Eve, we'll look at the theme of joy. And this morning, our text points us to Isaiah showing a vision of peace. So three things today we're going to see. We're going to see the peace we all want, the war we all know, and then lastly, the one we all need. The peace we all want, the war we all know, and the one we all need. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Fathers, we embrace this season, a season of tension. <laughs> Would you give us eyes afresh, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 50th time, to see the hope-filled vision of Isaiah fulfilled in the birth of your son, Jesus. And would that not leave us in this season unchanged? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the peace we all want. So on August 14th, 1945, there was an impromptu, spontaneous event that took place in Times Square. And this is the picture that was taken. Uh, the spontaneous event was Victory Over Japan Day. And there were crowds merging together, waiting to hear this official announcement from the president that it was finally there. And in the midst of all of that, a young sailor grabbed a young nurse who he didn't even know, and that's what happened. You see a picture like that, and you know there is joy and there is jubilation because of what? The end of a war. Well, in Isaiah, he actually paints a vivid scene, different than this, but nonetheless, that's remarkable. Look at verses 3 to 5. Isaiah writes this, You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil from the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, 
the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. It's a poetic picture of images of harvest and spoil. It's a time of abundance. It's a time in which those who were exerting their power and oppressing others and exploiting others was finally broken. And the peace in this vision is so pervasive that the very armor, the very boots, the very things that you would take off to war are burned because you don't need them anymore. You don't need to save them for later. It's done. This is the vision of peace that Isaiah paints, the the peace we all want, a world like that. You know, um, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, paints this in vivid colors in our contemporary world in this book. And he, he writes this about what that world would look like today. He says, nations and races would treasure differences. Government officials would still take office, but to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of South Dakota. That's my favorite one. And intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. Cornelius Plantinga Jr., in those words, he's trying to capture what the vision of Isaiah and other prophets were telling about the world we all want would look like if it came in the midst of our days. It's remarkable, is it not? And yet, let's be honest for a moment. Let's transition to point number two, which is this, the war we all know. You know, you hear a vision like this, right, in which Isaiah is talking about burning boots and armor and oppression being done, and you might say, uh, Isaiah, I think you're a little naive. Are you living under a rock? Or maybe you're just living in a time in which there is peace, it is calm. But it's actually not the case. In Isaiah 9, verse 1, we get a context for when Isaiah is writing. And he writes this, In the past he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. And what you need to know is Isaiah is writing at a time during a tremendous upheaval. There is not peace. Zebulon and Naphtali were in the northern regions of Israel. They're the northern tribes. And they were the first ones in 732 to be overwhelmed and overcome and conquered by Assyria. And they were exiled. In other words, when Isaiah is writing this vision, he's not writing it at a time of peace. He's not writing it at a time in which like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's where all things are headed. He's writing at a time 
of intense war and power struggles and exploitation and oppression, and there is fear and there is anxiety, that's when he's writing this vision. In other words, it's a lot like our world today. The war we all know. And let's be honest for a moment. In this, in this text, the war we all know is focused more on a political, geopolitical landscape among nations. But the scriptures go much further than that. And we know it as well. We know the war in every facet of our life, around every corner. It's in the political landscape. It's the visions we see across social media. It's in our schools. It's in our homes. It's the power struggles in the church. It's the racial strife that we continue to see as verdicts come down that remind us of the deep divisions in our country, right? Sometimes the war is simply expressed, it's really clear, it's outbursts of anger. Sometimes at the ones that we love the most. And what happens? It leaves wounds that we wonder if they'll ever heal. Other times, the war is a little bit more subtle. It's the coworker, the church member, the friend, or perhaps another race or class that is held with a quiet disdain and hatred, though not on the surface, is smoldering underneath. How about you? Where are you at war? What relationships in your life is there strife? Division, animosity. Listen, whether it's war on the geopolitical scale or it's across the kitchen table, like Isaiah, we all know what the world is really like. We all know how divided it is. And yet even in those moments, if you're really honest, you long for the world that he paints. You long for a world of peace. That's the one you want. And this is the tension. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Scripture, is it is not naive. It does not gloss over the realities of a fallen and broken world. It's not what Isaiah is doing here. And yet at the same point, in the midst of that world, Isaiah holds out hope. In Isaiah here, all signs, the whole entire movement of the passage is pointing to one person that we need. The turning point of the entire passage, the one that's going to take the world as we know it, the world that is at war and bring it to the peace we want, all finds its summation and consummation in the one described in verses 6 and 7. So let's look at it. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage ends with the, with the vision of a world at peace, of a kingdom that is expanding outward to a peace that will never end. And do you notice where it all begins? It begins with a birth announcement. Someone's been born. And not just anyone. It's really clear in this passage. It's someone from the line of David. It's a particular family. And this one who's coming, he's introduced with incredible titles. In other words, because of who he is, he is able to bring about this world of peace. He's a wonderful counselor. In this frame, it means that He's able to make wise plans and strategies. He's a mighty God. It's actually a title used for God himself. Everlasting Father. In those days, the king of any land was known as the father of that land, and as such, he was to be the protector. And then Prince of Peace. You know, one commentator put it this way, a ruler whose reign would bring about peace because the nations would rely on his just decisions in their disputes. Think about this. What Isaiah is saying, in the midst of a broken and divided world at war, a king from the line of David is coming who will bring about the peace in the world that we all want. And that is why Advent is so unique. Because over 2,000 years ago, on a hilltop, was this announcement in Luke's Gospel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, Here's, here's the claim of Christmas as we think about the season of Advent. It's that this long-awaited king who would bring about the world that we all want has come. He's been born. And it's interesting, particularly in this passage, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus embarks on his public ministry. Do you know where he begins it? In Matthew 4.13, speaking about Jesus, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. That should ring a bell. And then Matthew's Gospel says this, So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
the land of Zebulon and the land of Natalia, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In other words, the king has come. Isaiah's vision is on the move. The long-awaited king is here. And yet you're probably scratching your head. Let's, let's pause for a moment here. Think about this for a moment. Let's see if we're going to put together the resume of Isaiah 9 and the life of Jesus. Uh, we, we've seen he's from the right line. He's from the line of David. We've seen man where he started his public ministry. That's clearly him. But then what we might expect next is what we read earlier in verse 4. When it says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken is on the day of Midian. That actually goes back to a story in Judges where Israel was under the oppression of the Midianites. They would work hard throughout the year, plant their crops, harvest time would come, and the Midianites would come down and they'd wipe it out. And they called out to God, said, God, would you do something? And so Gideon is raised up to take out their oppressors. And so let's be honest for a moment. Jesus shows up. What do you expect him to do? Well, at the time he shows up, who's the one in charge? It's Rome. Rome's the Midianites. What are you expecting Jesus to do? If he's going to bring a world of peace, it would, it would suggest that he would at least take out the man. Take out Rome. And yet this is where... So many people miss it. This is the paradox of all paradoxes to this king. Because what does he do? He doesn't defeat Rome. He loses. That's what this king does. He literally loses. And yet this is the mystery that is revealed in the heart of the gospel. And he write, writes this, speaking about Jesus. He would fight the messianic battle by losing it. The real enemy after all was not Rome, but the power of evil that stood behind human arrogance and violence. Listen, this is something... This is so unique to the scriptures that tells us something about ourselves that we do not like to hear. We are far more comfortable pointing out systems and nations that exploit and oppress others. And those are there. Yet at the end of the day, the scriptures say the deepest and most pervasive problem, the reason the world is at war whether it's across the kitchen table or whether it's across the geopolitical landscape, is because of sin. G.K. Chesterton, um, sometime after World War I, maybe two, I can't remember, but there was a moment where the London Times asked him to write a series of articles asking the question, what is the problem with the world? And the great British thinker wrote a really short response 
Dear sirs, the problem with the world, quite frankly, is me. See, this is why, this is why Jesus had to fight by losing. Right? He had to fight that which truly is at the heart of all wars. He had to fight the battle for our sin. You know, there's a, the story of Gideon's victory is actually remarkable. It's the one you might be familiar with because it's the one where he had this really large army, 32,000 to be exact. And God said, here's the deal. If you go in and you take out the Midianites, you're going to take credit for this, you know? And so God whittles his army down to 300. Because if he goes in with 300, there's no way he can take any credit for the victory. It's clearly God who has won. You see, that's, that's at the very heart of the gospel. Because there is a true and better Gideon who has come. One who has not merely risked his life, but at the very cost of it. One who did something that you and I cannot do. We cannot achieve. But one who has given up his life for our sin, to forgive us and transform us from the inside out. To that which truly enslaves us what is at the heart of every division and every power struggle, whether it's across the table or whether it's across the continent, it's sin. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're curious, perhaps you're skeptical, perhaps you just got dragged here, um, really glad you're here. One of the things that's really interesting about this passage is if you would have been from the northern region of Naphtali, uh, the northern region of Israel, and you would have read this passage in that day, and you would have heard the rumor that the solution to the world at peace would be a Davidic king, you would have been so smug. <laughs> you would have so sneered. Because what you don't, may not know is that the northern kingdom had split from the southern kingdom centuries before. They had rejected the line of David. And now they're being told, actually, that's where your hope lies. And you know what? If you're here, you're not a Christian, or you're one of the Christian faith, let me put it this way. You may think about this and go, Jesus? Really? Are you serious? I am, actually. But I just want to tell you, you're not alone. It, you may not have, not have the same smugness and sneerness that those in the original audience had, but you do have some, right? It might be like, this is just too simple. This is too naive. This says some really offensive things about myself that I don't really want to come to terms with. Can I just ask you, this takes time. It takes time to work through these things. But let me be real clear. At the end of the day, what Isaiah is saying, the world that you want, the hope for it, is all in the one that was in the manger that first Christmas. That's what it's saying. You have to wrestle and deal with him. Let me encourage you to stick with us this series. Or maybe with a friend that invited you, 
have some further conversations. Be honest. In a post-Christian, whatever world we live in, these, these claims seem very silly, but no less silly than what they were in that day. But it's not about how it sounds, it's whether or not it's true. So give yourself to it. But how about for you, Christian? What does this mean for you and for me? Does this mean we just kind of sit back and wait for Jesus to return and make everything right? Is that it? Is that, have we done it? Actually, no. Christianity, as one of my mentors puts it, is not something to be merely believed. It is to be lived. In Jesus, he inaugurated this kingdom of peace when he came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and he rose again. And today, presently, he continues that work through the church. A global, multi-ethnic family that has one thing in common. They have been rescued by grace through him, and therefore, they are one. They are not divided. And here's what this means. Let's go back to the question of the world as we know it, or the world we, at war as we know. What relationships in your life is there strife? Is there division? Is there animosity? You see, if you've received the peace that comes through Christ, then in response to that, you become an instrument of peace in this world. In light of what God has done for us, we are to live lives that seek the peace toward others. Perhaps it's no better summarized in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul writes this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, along with all malice. Think for a moment. Paul's talking about deep heart issues there, isn't he? And then he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What relationships in your life are at strife, in division, and full of animosity? Where is there not peace? In light of what Christ has done, be tender-hearted. Move, move towards them, even, even if they are hurting you. And be safe. I'm not saying physically. I'm saying even if their words hurt you, you move towards them. It's costly, and it's painful. But Christ has come, and Christ will come again. And because of that, in the midst of living in that tension of waiting, Christian, 
we walk out lives that pursue peace with those who are at odds with us. Let us pray. Father, we um, give you thanks today for the hope that we have in the midst of a world at war to make peace. Father, pray for those who are exploring the faith and the season and pray that you would reveal more and more of who you are through your Son in these days. Lord, in the midst of their confusion and doubts, would you meet them by your Spirit through your Word. And pray as well, Lord, for those of us who are following you and trying to work out this peace in a world that is not perfect, in which we are still far from what we ought to be. Would you help us to grasp the width and depth and height and length of the love that you have shown us. And in response to that, would you help us to pursue and love others in the same manner? We ask this for your sake. Amen.